You are now listening to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Now, I'm here with Holden J. Wilmore. That's where you say hello. Hey, how are you guys doing? I'm Holden, uh, better known on the internet as True Stories of World War II. Um, find us on Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> well, already plugging off the back. Okay, then. Okay, well, when it comes to what you do professionally or what do you prefer to talk about? Uh, well, professionally, I call myself a full-time student right now. Um, what are you I, studying? I, history? University of Minnesota. I'm studying history and education. Um, got a couple years left on the bachelor's, and then I've already been accepted into the master's program in education. Um, but what I do for a job, I'm a full-time Instagrammer. So. I mean, it, the student thing, though, when you're studying history, like, I didn't notice I had, a like, I guess a fascination for history until I got out of school, and I went to college, and I was like, oh, this is some interesting stuff. Like, they're teaching you – the stuff they teach you in class is cool and all, but, you know, you're a kid in high school. You don't really – you're not really paying attention. But I used to do a spinoff of this podcast called Fill in the Blank. And okay. is where we focused on specific topics. And my buddy was super interested in war, just everything. He wanted to know about the Industrial Revolution. He wanted to know, and I learned about the Luddite movement. I learned about so much stuff. And when I was coming across articles, much was the popular one of the time was MK Ultra. So that one led me down some fucking rabbit holes that took me into a, a parallel universe, I would say. So sure. what major fascination come with, I guess, World War II? You know, I, I get asked that question a lot. You know, I run a pretty big World War II blog. Um, you know, I tend to think it's because of my family. Uh, like four of my great-grandparents served in World War II. So, I mean, I kind of grew up with those stories. Um, you know, your great-grandpa, he, he fought in the war. And then, you know, you do a little bit of family research, and that kind of gets you down, like you said, like a rabbit hole. Like before you know, you're 10 books deep. And it's kind of a fascination for me. And, it's not just the war, though. For me, like, I'm really interested in the weapons. Um, you know, the United States weapons, but also the allies as a whole, as well as the access, specifically like Japanese stuff, too. Now, have you ever been to the kind of the museum or been to the war memorial up in Hawaii? You know, I haven't been to Hawaii, um, but I've been uh, overseas in Germany as well as. Uh, when I was enlisted in the Marine Corps, I was stationed in Japan for two years. So I've been on a lot of the battlefields, which I think that's a pretty moving experience to actually be where the wars were fought. You feel it in the air because um, I went and I visited uh, Hawaii. And when I went to Honolulu, uh, we took a, we went to the war memorial and we take this boat. You know, you go up, you, you know, besides like the regular museum that's often showing everybody's uniforms, all the weapons they use that, you know, the, you know, you get to see like the little video where you sit down and watch what happened. And it gives you like that. It was the year was 19. And then it starts going like that. Well, we got on this boat and I swear you could feel it just hopping onto the boat. And when you're sailing across and you're going right over to where these ships are sunk, literally underwater, they built a memorial on top. A little island type thing that's kind of floating above it and you're sitting up there and you're listening to someone talk and it's a very very heavy situation i would say um i really want to stress the importance of i guess museums from talking to a few people that curate their own museums and stuff i think it's important to remember history it was a very very tense time and if anybody's ever seen the pearl harbor film that I mean, that's a two and a half hour film or something, and it is fucking heavy. Well, going there and seeing it, like me and my family, like obviously when you're driving or something, you're getting pissed off. You're getting road rage. So us trying to find a spot into this museum, there's 50,000 people backing up, trying to fix their, you know, sideways parking. So we're already getting upset. We're like, all right, this guy, this guy, if he, does, if he backs up one more time. So we go into this 
museum and then we finally go out onto the boat to go to this war memorial and as we are standing on this memorial you get to see the names etched in to just this giant stone wall and you're reading off all of them and seeing if you can find somebody like me with like a last name similar to mine and out of respect you don't take pictures out of respect you know it's something you just you, you you feel the moment you feel the heaviness in the air you realize all these people that have lost their lives and people that didn't make it back home all these other types of things and it was really weird because there was a large asian population that was there um they were taking selfies and totally disrespecting and this is when i bring up the confrontation when people always say like yeah i mean you can crap on another country that country gets defensive it happens all the time. I mean, you hear videos of people saying America sucks, America's this, America's that. You don't have to be a patriot. But when it's really weird, like if I told you America's terrible, which I'm not saying I love America, it does have its moments where you're like, eh, you know, but if I said that to you, you would, even if you were crapping on it with me, but if someone else from another country said it to us, we would immediately get defensive. Yeah. I, I come across it all the time, someone from the UK, someone from Australia that just starts going, oh, isn't there this problem there, this problem there? And immediately I'm like, there is. Didn't you know you also have these problems, these problems, these problems and where you live? And it's, it becomes like a, a, a symbol of, I guess, pride in a way. You know, you want to defend your own, which is why I, I wanted to bring that point up because I understand the blog. I understand like immediately someone comes across your Instagram page, they're going to think, oh, this guy's probably like, you know, ex-military, probably has like an American flag tattooed on his arm, probably like muscle-bound gym freak. And I'm like, that's a stereotype, but it's just someone that really cares about the history of what happened in our world and to never forget because yeah. it is important to move on, but it's also important to always remember what had happened. True. You know, I really like your story about going to Pearl Harbor, and I, I encourage people to have those um, experiences for themselves, you know, go to these places. You know, I've, I've taken some heat because I have some pretty controversial opinions about um, what I call dark tourism, um, which is going to places like battlefields. Um, my controversial opinion is that a lot of these places shouldn't be open to tourists. And my biggest one is concentration camps. And a lot of people are like, you know, it's, it's really powerful to go to concentration camps. You have really powerful moments there. And I, I personally have too. I went to Dachau concentration camp about 10 years ago, stood in the gas chamber, saw the ash grapes. I had a really powerful experience. I like to think that was one of the things that, you know, pushed me towards studying World War II. But people don't think about the money the local economies are making off of dark tourism so maybe like you go to a concentration camp they're not going to charge admission right but people go to these countries and spend money there to see these sites you buy a plane ticket to germany you buy a hotel room you eat in the local restaurants you spend money in gift shops all this money is funneled into the local economy uh tourism economy and then when it comes down to it they're making money off of the story of the people that died in the Holocaust. So profiting off misfortune, that's where you're seeing what's wrong with it. I mean, I can agree to that. I think museums and stuff like battle sites and all that should be open to the public. But if you're going to disrespect it, then you're just a piece of shit. I mean, it's, it's, I yeah. know that's strong saying that, but it's like at the same time, if I go to another country and I'm standing on their war memorial or I'm at their war memorial, if I just throw trash on the ground, i I, I wouldn't feel right with myself. I'd want right. someone to correct me because it's the people that lost their lives there. It's you're like, there's so much sacrifice. If anybody's ever seen like the boy in the striped pajamas, anybody's ever heard an actual Holocaust story, talk to any of the survivors. It wasn't fucking fun. Like it's not something, you know, when you hear about it and you hear about the stories behind it, I mean, not only is it American history, it's the world's history because this right. one country almost took over everybody. Yeah, and I don't think anybody says that that's controversial. Nobody says you should go to the, these places and make a fool of yourself. But like the next layer is what do these memorials and these sites do for the local areas where they're, they're in now? I mean, for me, it's just hard to be like, you have a tourism economy based on human suffering. Nobody really sees an issue with that. And I mean, you hope that, you know, at least some of the money is going towards like, 
helping people that are facing human genocide around the world. Dude, have you um, heard about um, them trying to like shut down and like destroy Auschwitz and all those other places, the concentration camps, knock them down? Uh, you know, I've seen stuff about that like over the years. And, you know, see, that's kind of where it's hard for me to draw a line. Obviously, I don't want to see these sites destroyed, but I also don't like the thought of them making money off of people. So, I mean, but that's a gray area for me. So do they keep these camps in their present condition, but don't allow anybody to go there to make money? When you say making money, are they charging tickets to enter? They're not. And that's where a lot of people that, when I make that point, they're like, well, they're not charging admission, but people go to these areas to specifically go to these locations. And when you go to an area, you spend money in the local economy. That, that's the only thing that's drawing you to that local economy. How about say I draw the line if they were like selling turt like merch or something like that would be they like, do that. Are there you fucking is, serious? There is gift shops and in, in concentration camps. That's a, that's that's a biggie for me. I would see. I mean, I get it, but I don't like it. You know what I mean? Like it's. I feel like every topic like this is something I'm going to be like. I understand where you're coming from, but I don't think that. It's, I mean, it definitely is always got to be free, especially any historical land site, any battlefield. Um, but yeah, charging a t-shirt saying, you know, welcome to Auschwitz. That's a, that's a fucking big one for me. Yeah. Usually when we get to that point in the conversation, most people are like, okay, I kind of see where you're coming from. I get but, it. I got you. But my, my biggest gripe, especially this is specifically Dachau concentration camp. Uh, it's in Bavaria in Southern Germany. People try to do Dachau as like a half a day, and then they'll go to North Swanstein Castle, which is better known as the Cinderella Castle, in the afternoon. So they'll go to a concentration camp in the morning, and then this other huge tourist attraction in the afternoon. If you're going to have this emotional experience going to a concentration camp, you're going to experience it's, – it's powerful. It's moving. I, I, I can't take that away. I can't understate it enough. You've got to do it for yourself. It's you but, feel you. It's where I talk about like uh, certain scenes or certain environments. They hold like a memory, like something that's been stained either by so much pain or so much love, where you can feel it literally in the walls around you. I mean, it's not a place you would go on a first date. Let's just say you're not going if you're taking your date to Auschwitz. That's fucking. That's but a, you take a day, one. you take a day, and you do that. You don't go do touristy stuff in the afternoon. It's just that's really hard for me and. Unfortunately, those locations are very close to each other, and they're both huge tourism draws uh, in Germany. And, you know, Dachau and Auschwitz probably draw the biggest outside crowds. Uh, obviously, Auschwitz is in Poland, so it's not a draw for Germany. But I mean, Pearl, Pearl Harbor for me was pretty bad after seeing the walls and seeing the people that like kind of were taking photos selfies you know like laughing and smiling in front of the thing it was very very like me and my brother you could see everybody really kind of just looking at him like oh this is disrespectful like like you see us getting angry and then um when i think what really got me was there was a survivor um from one of the ships who was there in a wheelchair i mean he looked like he was not going this was a few years ago he did not he looked i mean i was probably 14 or 15 he did not look like he was going to be around too much longer and he's in a wheelchair and this person's talking to him. So everyone's kind of gathering around to hear the story and kind of hear his, you know, insights of what, you know, it's a real person that was there. So people wanted to get the information and um, he looked down at this ship, you know, when you get to see below it is uh, the ship with everybody that didn't make it out still under there. They leave that there and they preserve that there. Um, so, you know, you get to see the oil on top of the water, kind of. You get to see, it looks like a rainbow, you know. And they're telling you, like, here's where the ship sunk and they're still preserved down there. There's bodies down there that are still stuck inside the ship. And the guy was talking. We looked over at him. And the weird thing is what they do is with the survivors of these tragic war incidents, like the Pearl Harbor situation, he literally was asking, like, you know, he like it, it was really kind of him pleading or kind of talking like, you know, wanted to get like go down there kind of. It was really strange. I don't think he was understanding. Like I said, he was towards the end of his days. And the guy said, when you pass away, when you when you leave this earth, 
when you, if you want to be cremated, we can take your ashes and we'll have someone, a scuba team, whatever, go down there and stick the ashes inside of the ship. And dude, I got chills just hearing it. I was like, whoa. And he was like, thank you. Cause he, I mean, he started tearing up and we all started tearing up. Like it was like, he gets to finally be reunited with his comrades. Like, you know, his people that he went on the ship with. And after that, like we talk about like planning a day for it. We literally went right back to our hotel room and we didn't want to do anything. We, we yeah. were so freaking like, it was just too much the gravity of the situation. Everybody rode home in silence. There was nothing else. Have you ever had an experience at a certain memorial or something like this that, you know, you want to bring up? You know, aside from going to Dachau, I think my most moving experience like that was, uh, I was stationed in Okinawa, Japan. Um, anybody listening was in the Marine Corps, you end up in Japan at some point, but I lived in Okinawa for two years. And for, for those of you who don't know, um, Okinawa was really the last front of the Pacific War. Um, it fell in 1945 and it, it was like the last domino. Once Okinawa had fallen, the war was over. The U.S. had won. And we're still occupying Okinawa to extent 80 years later. Um, there's multiple military bases there. Okay, that's that's the quick wrap, wrap up. But the southern part of the island is, was the last holdout of the Japanese, basically, in the in the uh, war in the Pacific. And they, they hid in what's called the, the naval underground there. And it, um, if you're familiar with a show that was on TV a number of years ago, it was like uh, the mysteries of the underworld or something like that. It yeah. was all the tunnels under cities. Well, there's one of them about this, the naval underground in Okinawa. Uh, you can look it up if you want to. But there's basically a series of tunnels under the southern part of the island. And it was the last stand of the Japanese. And once they had fallen, the war was over, basically. Um, and the plan was they were going to fight the tooth and nail, sharpened sticks, you know. But once it was obvious that the war was going to be over, people started to kill themselves um, in these naval underground tunnels. And I had the chance to see a very small portion of it, obviously, that's open to the public. And there you go down, 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 like just forever. You're going downstairs forever. And the first room you come into is this, it's just a whitewashed room, but there's a little pitting in, in the walls. I'm like, what the heck is that? Well, it's pitting from the shrapnel to grenade. And you're like, okay, well, why did the grenade go off in this room? A Japanese, Japanese officers had killed themselves in that room with the grenade. And you could still see the pitting in the wall where these people, they had given up on the war. And that was it. And this was their final stand. Have that you, was, um, did you stick your finger in one of the holes? I, I know that sounds stupid to say, but I feel like for me, like it was a blocked off. If it wasn't blocked off and you're walking through a tunnel and you see these grenade shrapnel, like in the wall, I would stick and take my hands and run it across it just to feel like the power that it is kind of given off. Yeah. I want to say that I ran my hand across the wall, but I mean, it, it was a number of years ago now. So I don't really remember, but that was a really powerful experience because you're like in this room, the hope of the Japanese empire collapsed. Basically, this was this was the last stand. It, it was over. What's crazy is if you look at um, you ever seen the movie with Wolverine where it's like the newest one where they take out his metal claws. He goes to Japan or something to save these this uh, to go visit this guy on his dying bed or whatever. And it shows the war scene where he saved the guy's life in the first place. That was more impactful than the Pearl Harbor movie. You got the, I mean, it was a little bit fake, but when you saw the bombs drop, these soldiers just took out their samurai swords and stuck it into their chest and just go down on it. And Wolverine comes up, slaps the samurai sword down from one guy, throws him in a well, and then holds up this thing while this nuke goes off. And, you know, then the nuke's over with, and he drops it, and he's all basically like skeleton, burned flesh. And, you know, he saved some dude's life. I know that sounds crazy, but it impacted more of the situation for me that one scene like that was like a pearl harbor scene like it was a moment like when we watched the pearl harbor movie every scene in that you nobody's talking in class you're just watching it nobody's you know doing anything you're just paying attention to what's going on and it was like to capture the gravity of that situation i would say is pretty is, is pretty amazing i don't know if you're familiar with the movie uh hacksaw ridge it came out a couple of years ago um uh, it's based in Okinawa, but it was the story of a Corporal Desmond Doss. He was an army medic during World War II, but he was a conscious objector, so he didn't carry a weapon in the war. But the movie's all about, you know, how he had to battle to um, even be allowed to be in the army during World War II. It was unheard of to not carry a weapon, you know. But due to his religious uh, convictions, 
he didn't want to carry a weapon. He eventually got um, the approval and he got shipped overseas as a medic with his unit in Japan on Hacksaw Ridge. And if you watch the movie, I mean, it's not exactly how it looks like in Japan. And um, multiple days worth of events are kind of like put into one day in the movie. But more or less, he saved countless uh, American lives on Okinawa. And I've also been to Hacksaw Ridge where this happened. And he was like lowering injured service members down this this ridge while being shot at by like Japanese soldiers for like 12 or 16 hours or something crazy like that. And just to be on the site where that took place too, I mean, I really encourage people to actually go to these places. I mean, I obviously know that not everyone's going to go to Europe or Japan, but if you have the opportunity and you're already there, you should have these experiences respectfully. What do you um, typically prefer to talk about in World War II? Like, what's one thing that you have dug up or that you've come across? Is it American history only, or are you digging up others? Other because, like, what I realized was that we have some pretty badass war heroes, but right. like I said, it's our history. It's everyone's history that was going against so, Germany at the time. Yeah, and I, people that are familiar with my blog or people that end up there after watching this, they'll kind of kind of get a, a sense of where my interests lie. They're kind of all over the place, to be honest. Um, I got a couple of different projects going right now. One of them, I'm studying the home front during World War II. So not necessarily what was going on overseas, but the sacrifice that your average John had to make living in America during uh, 1941 to 1945, between food rationing, gas rationing, tire rationing, and this, this whole like the idea of total war. What does that actually mean? And I've been doing that by studying 1940s life magazines, because you can kind of get a sense of the feeling in the like the feeling in the air, basically. What was Dude, it like? I got I gotta say something. There is a certain thing, and I'm pretty sure if you've studied the life magazines, there's a life magazine I want you to look up. When Hitler took uh when Hitler changed Christmas. Have you seen okay. that? So yeah. It's him and it says Wunderhofen or whatever it is in German. And it's them, it's him uh, with a little girl and they're sitting at like a Christmas themed kind of like house table thing. He literally took away Christmas. He took Jesus out of Christmas. He made them instead of making cookies and gingerbread men, it was World War II airplanes and battle soldiers. He made instead of like the little toy airplanes, it was soldiers. It was everything was military, but he couldn't take away Santa Claus. Everyone drew the line at Santa. They're like, no, not half and not happening but it's the weirdest thing where i'm sitting there staring at this picture and it's hitler smiling and a little girl smiling up at him like are we gonna make world war ii airplanes he goes you bet you bet your ass we are <laughs> so definitely that's that's one thing i've been working on is, is this what was it like to be an american during the war uh in in the U.S., not necessarily overseas. I also, I mean, obviously, I look at the contributions of Americans overseas as well, but I think a lot of people do that. You know, you don't hear about what was it like to just be alive during this total war. Um, also, I, if I find a really interesting story while I'm doing research, it doesn't really have to do with anything, you know, just some random fact that I haven't seen anywhere else, you know. And that's where the whole true stories of World War II name comes from is I want to tell you these true things that they don't seem like they're true. You know, every once in a while I'll run across what I like to call a, a great man. There's a lot to be said about not just telling the story of one person, but these people that lived like multiple lives in, in one life, you know, their, bi their, uh, their bio reads like multiple people all sandwiched together, you know, like they're, they're bigger than life. Like people that fought in three wars and, um, uh, you know, these crazy contributions. I'll so, give you one. Jack Churchill, man. I think his name's Jack Churchill, but he was known as the Nazi slaying uh, badass soldier or samurai wielding soldier of World War Two. He carried a well, it wasn't a samurai sword, but he carried a sword. It was a Scottish yeah, sword. There's, there's fucking yeah. pictures of him coming off the boat with a sword and everyone else is like this fucking guy i'm glad he's on my team like that stuff's amazing but even like that is a little too mainstream for me i like to really dig up the, the weird stuff so what about night witches i'm not too Bro, familiar with that one russia they had an elite team of women. oh women pilots okay sure 
in crop dusting airplanes in the middle, like that shit, you start reading articles like those. That's what's, that's where I'm like, all right, this is, this is insane. And how come I don't know about this? And I had to Google it. Like I, I, that's what really gets me. I wish this was taught more in museums. I understand it's like, oh, I got to teach the American side of things, but it's like, there's so much other stuff. Like it was literally a bunch of people going against one freaking country, well, one guy technically. Yeah. And then I guess the third and final real direction in my page lately blog has been, um, you know, my own journey to understand my own family's contributions in the war, but also encouraging other people to do the, do the legwork. You know, what is your family's um, military history? Um, was you, were your grandparents war heroes and you have no idea because you've never spent the two minutes to Google your grandma or your grandpa? And you'd be surprised, you know? Um, I, I, I've been doing work actually this morning. That's why it's kind of running late <laughs> to record with you. Um, research on the side of the family that I hadn't done too much research. There was 10 siblings, eight brothers, seven of them fought in World War II. Seven, you know. And it was your crazy. great uncle that was in World War II, right? Uh, well, a lot. I mean, I have like four great grandfathers that fought in World War II, as well as, I mean, probably over a dozen of their siblings combined. Um, so far, I only have one that was um, killed in action in Papua New Guinea, who would have been a great, great uncle of mine. But uh, my grandfather, one of them, uh, he was a bomber pilot, flew like 49 missions. He's pretty awesome to read about. But, you know, you're, like, they don't have to be war heroes. You know, it's, it's just interesting to know what your family did. You know, that's part of your history. That's part of who you are. And do you think this like the weird thing, like how I always talk about how it blows your mind kind of when you find this stuff out, do you think that it's only because how we've gone as a society today? I feel like we've gotten pretty soft as people. Like, I mean, bodybuilding, whatever. Yeah, you're not soft, bro. I get it. You're swole. But what I'm saying is when it comes to technology, all these other things, like nobody, like the pandemic, for instance, we had this happen. Everyone didn't know what to do. Nobody could work. It was really showing a bad time. And we're still kind of trying to come back from that right now. But it's like back in the day, like my great grandfather, he was he got a loaf of bread for a week. You know, he learned to use everything that he possibly can. He learned to be very handy, you know, watching him do stuff. I saw him hammer a nail into a board and actually get his thumb. Like no joke, like movie scene stuff where it actually went all the way through. And he was like, huh? And it just kept on going. I was like, I'd be 20 minutes on the ground, fetal position, like screaming with my thumb up in the air. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'll have one of those conversations with somebody about, you know, what, what if there was a draft right now in 2020, you know, and all of a sudden, every 18-year-old graduating from high school had to go fight a war overseas like our grandparents and our great-grandparents did. Like, what, what would be the reaction? Uh, obviously, during Vietnam, there was a lot of protests. You know, people were burning draft cards. But in World War II, there wasn't so much protest. You know, there was a little bit. Some people didn't want to go fight. But what, what it means to be an American has changed so much in the last 80 years. And, you know, I don't want to think of us as being soft. I just want to think of us as living in America has allowed us to be comfortable. You know, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. But we live in a place where, you know, we don't have to spend every day thinking about war and terrible stuff. You know, we we've been allowed a certain amount of freedom and comfortability. And, you know, I don't know if that's a bad thing. It's different. You know, it's different than our grandparents' experience. They were not um, subsistence farming in the middle of the woods like my great-grandparents were, you know, living in a log cabin with 12 people with a dirt floor, hoping that nobody starves during the winter, you know? Yeah. I don't think that's a bad thing that we don't have those experiences, but I mean, you're right. People are a little, probably a little softer now. I think but. it's like you're saying the comfortability factor. I mean, even with the shutdown and everything happened, I think everyone started realizing, oh shit, what are we doing with our lives? You know what I mean? Before it was like, you know, we never had to worry about war. You still, you know, everyone talks about it, like World War Three, all this other type of stuff. I'm like, we don't even know what that's like. We have our confrontations. We have our bickering left and right, but do you know what it's like to get shot at? Do you know what it's like? All these other types of things that everyone's there. Oh, I, I did it on Call of Duty. I'm like, it's nothing like fucking Call of Duty. 
This is real yeah. stuff. We don't ever have to worry about food. We have grocery stores. Back in the day, people had to worry about where their next meal was coming from. And then think there are people going days and days without eating. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be able to hear some stories from a Holocaust survivor um, at an old retirement home. When I was in my government class, I had to do volunteer hours at a retirement home. And the stories I heard, it's it'll break your heart. And they're not even full on stories. She didn't probably even get into the details, but it was the aspect of trying to explain from her eyes, the pain. And it, it catches you by the throat and it makes you want to learn as much as you possibly can about what happened. So you can be more educated on this situation. And like you messaged me before, you know, you talk about some pretty controversial topics. Why the fuck is history controversial? I don't understand that. Why is this part in our, it, it happened, it's written in stone. It might be written by a winner or it might be cited, but like there's things you can find out. There's research you can do. There's education that needs to be done. And, you know, not just for American history, but everyone else's history as well. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. You know, and, you know, I'm going to little plug myself here, but on Instagram, they do not, the Instagram algorithm does not like history accounts. It doesn't like uh, you to write about Nazis, for one. It doesn't like to see firearms. So why do we choose to use this platform to give this message? Well, we give, we want to do it on Instagram because you're on Instagram already. You know, you're already scrolling through Instagram. You're not, you don't have to go out of your way to get a history lesson. My history lesson is between your two friends from high school's picture at the beach. So my hope is that, you know, it's going to get to more people. But at the end of the day, Instagram wants to uh, suppress history. And it's, well, not it's, just, it's not just Instagram. Yeah, it's, not it's, just Instagram, no. it's um, it's the way the algorithm goes for all social media accounts is you're known as what we call a fire starter account. Not that yeah. your topics are fire starter, but the fact that history in general to a lot of people is a quick fire flame. You know, everyone immediately goes to, you know, same thing with COVID. If you hashtag anything COVID immediately, that's getting flagged immediately. That's getting like I'll, I'll put a hashtag COVID or stay home 2020. Um, a popular hashtag people have been using since this whole thing. And immediately it'll give CDC information at the bottom of my post. And I'm like, well, what the hell, man? Like, it's not even about that. I'm talking about fucking training monkeys in a zoo, not freaking actual COVID. But like, why does algorithms, I would have to say, why, why is that such a thing? Like, I understand, you know, getting something. If I talk about something with you, I guarantee you after this podcast, I'm going to get like 30 World War II ads pop up on my phone. But you know, history, why is that such a taboo subject? I get some people don't want to talk about it, or is it a side thing? I don't understand. Yeah, you know, you can talk to anybody who's in my little community on Instagram. We stray away from talking about Germany, you know, Nazis in particular, uh, because it's not worth it. You know, it's not worth losing your account or your business that you've been building for months to make one post. It's usually a throwaway post like, hey, look at this cool German money I got from World War II. Like, look how cool it is. And all of a sudden your account's banned for 10 days. So we have to like, we have to make those sacrifices so we can tell some history. Like I can't talk about certain things because I don't want to lose my business, you know? And um, I don't know what it, what it is about Germany in particular, because I can talk to you all day about Japanese and everything that J Japan did during World War II and I don't have to worry about is a thousand times worse than what Germany did you know it's at least comparable you know and I don't have to worry about that you know I could post a captured Japanese flag on my on my page I don't have to worry about losing followers and having my page banned for a week you know you know what gets me is the fact that whenever we compare somebody to being evil or something we compare them to hitler and then if we ever compare um like what's the worst group of people like oh they're like the nazis there is unit 731 which a lot of people don't know about that did way more sadistic shit and no one says a word about it no one even i had to google that to find out hiro ishi uno that guy is, when someone says, oh, that's the next Hitler, I'm like, no, that's the next Hiroishi. Let me tell you something. Because, like, 
he did some i mean floating jars in people's heads he called people logs they called them yeah. um their, their labor camps were known as mills and people were known as the logs so when you're reading these diaries you're reading you're thinking oh we're talking about a sawmill no he's talking about people and they would cut off their limbs and put them in jars i mean do you know anything about this stuff you know i'm not familiar with him in particular but i'm really familiar with uh joseph Mengele. the uh He's better known as the Angel of Death. Uh, he was the Nazi doctor at Auschwitz that was known for all kinds of crazy medical experiments, you know, like murdering twins to see if they could like feel pain together, like doing like high altitude testing and like uh, cold weather testing. So like putting people in like uh, vacuum chambers to kill them and like freezing people to death. You know, in theory, it was like, well, trying to like save German pilot lives. Well, there's no scientific value to any of this stuff, to be honest. He just killed a ton of people and in the name of science and progress. Um, what do you think about the Nuremberg trials? You know, I think I hold a, a similar opinion to a lot of people. Like, yeah, it would have been nice to see a lot more people charged. But at the end of the day, you know, we had to move on. We could string up every German that fought in the war, you know? We couldn't hang every adult male in Germany. There had to be somebody there to rebuild the country. And, and that's kind of, unfortunately, that's a controversial opinion, you know? That is shouldn't. because of the fact people are like, why didn't they all die? Why didn't they this? Why did the government just accept this information and give them pardon? It's like, yeah. it happened. They couldn't reverse it. So it's like, yeah, they did some fucked up shit they should punish. But at the same time, there's nothing you can do after it's happened. We might as well use their research, you know, and figure out, oh, you can't chop somebody's arm off and then try and sew them back together without some type of thing to stop the bleeding or they're going to bleed out. You know, and it, we went through a very similar experience in the U.S. And we don't like to talk about it very much. But after the Civil War, you know, we had to decide what we what's going to happen to the South now. You know, we brought them back into the fold. but Who's going to lead them? Who's going to be the governors and the senators and the representatives when every adult male fought in a rebellion against the United States? And for a while, you know, we, we had like uh, military governors, basically, you know, like Sherman in Georgia. And, um, but after a while, we had to just be like, we can't do this forever. They're going to have to fill some political positions eventually, you know. The, the Civil War... America had to decide, you know, how are we going to govern the South when all the adult males were fighting this rebellion? And eventually we just had to forgive and forget. You know, we had no other option. We had to move on eventually. And the Nuremberg trials are really like that. Okay, we're going to make an example out of these, I don't know, it was like 11 or 12 people that got hung. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it wasn't very many. You know, we imprisoned some more, but we only hung a handful of people, really. And um, we had to move on. You know, you couldn't punish the entire country. And it wasn't even the entire country because, or it wasn't even just the entire country because other people fought for Germany outside of Germany. You know, we, we tend to forget that. It was a total war. It was the whole world was fighting this war. You know, and we couldn't kill every bad guy. It was, I mean, you couldn't kill half the world's population, you know? Yeah. I think it was a point all countries kind of got together and were like, we're going to have to end this guy because it's affecting all of us. Like everyone kind of was sitting at the wayside, kind of stroking their chins, kind of like, Oh, it's America and German going against each other. Let's see that happen. And then once it encroached on their territory, like, hang on a second, this isn't fun. And then they started realizing, oh, no, his job isn't just to go after one person. It's to go against all of us. So we all need to come together and stop him here and now. You know, yeah. the movie Inglorious Bastards was a good one, too, that comes into showing up, you know, a different perspective on the whole thing as well. Um, but it really showed that everyone played a part everyone not to, you know they talk about oh women can't fight in the military all these other things at the time women stepped up women did something that was the most important in my opinion out of everything besides actually fighting the war was helping us by sending supplies helping you know yeah. taking care of the factories rosie the riveter all these types of things that happened you know this is something that it was, like I said, it, it does get a little it kind of heated to talk about, but it is something that is of prime importance. I think a lot of people need to understand, you know, those posters, these propaganda things, a lot was going on in this situation. I feel like it gets glossed over a little bit more in school and education systems. Obviously, you can't like kind of focus 
um, you know, the whole year on it. But I feel like there is a way to teach it better than what's being taught in the education system. I feel like there's a funner way to get kids who have an interest or might even have the inclination of having an interest in this, such as coming across your Instagram page, for instance, a kid that's a, a history nut is going to see that and they oh, immediately follow you, but it's not going to be the one that's going to be shown anywhere. It's the same thing with them. Um, I, I podcasted with a guy named, um, who was, uh, I was going to kill me if I, Dan Bass, I think his name was, but he's the sons of history. Um, his Instagram page guys, check him out. He talks about how past events are going to affect future events. And it was such a crazy conversation to hear about. Like, I don't think anybody really realizes how much freedom we actually have. It's not that strong. Somebody told us to fucking stay home and we all stayed home. And then after a while it was, you can't leave your house. Then that's when things got scary. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you know, I've, I started out with this opinion, you know, it, it's a common trope. You've heard it a million times. History repeats itself. If we don't learn from history, we're going to repeat the same mistakes. And I think that's, that's misleading, I guess, you know, because um, it comes from this idea that we are constantly progressing towards this so-called perfect society, right? But the key here is history is not progressive. Get that idea 100% out of your mind. You know, we're not, it's not this constant march to per perfection. You know, we've been stumbling over the same issues forever. You know, race, it's 2020. You know, we still have race issues. There was race issues in the Bible, you know? We, we've been dealing with the same problems forever, you know, income inequality. There's always been income inequality. You know, education, you know, there's always been discrepancies in education. So when we're talking about, you know, history always repeats itself, you know, there's more to the story. It's, it's just that history, we, we aren't like progressing as a society, you know, and I think people, they get the wrong idea, you know, it's, it's not like we're just getting better and better and better. And eventually we're going to be perfect. No, it's just the, the same things are the same stumbling blocks. They've always been, we, we haven't ever like properly dealt with them, you know? And if you actually study history in college, you know, you get a little bit of that, you know, fighting against this whole idea that, you know, history is a march towards progress. It, it's just not, you know, that's, it's too simple. So yeah, we were, we, I mean, I agree with you. We're not really learning from anything that we've kind of went over with. I feel like our foundation that we're on is pretty shady. It's pretty rocky, I would say, um, like a chair with a loose leg. And I feel like we need to rebuild and kind of start back up from the bottom, which I think that's what everyone's starting to realize is that there's some severe issues. But it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, comfortability, man. We've been too damn comfortable and we've had too many things just trying to survive on our own in an economy that's not doing the best and extremely not right now doing the best. Um, people are trying to get something for themselves. They're trying to be happy. They're trying to get themselves a life and you can't focus on the extreme issues. So it's like having a cut and then putting a bandaid on top of it when it needs stitches. Like you need, you gotta, we gotta fix the problem first, or if we keep trying to rebuild, it's going to keep tumbling, tumbling right back down. Yeah, I don't want to get too political with you, but, you know, um, my whole, like, stand with, from studying history, I can tell you that, you know, when society shifts from super far right to super far left, and it keeps going back and forth, you know, it's bad news. The societies that are able to, like, you know, stay in the middle of the teeter-totter, you know, they just, they, just, they just do better. You know, this constant, like, radical right, radical left, like, back and forth shift, it's bad news. You know, anytime that both sides of the political spectrum are completely radicalized, it's not gonna be good, it's not gonna end well, you know? And that's what we're experiencing that right now in 2020. People aren't realizing this is history, you know? Our kids and our grandkids are gonna be learning about 2020 in their history class. And that's scary, you know? It's, in a perfect life, you'll never have lived through traumatic his historic event you know you don't want to live through another 9-11 or another world war ii or vietnam but we're living through one of those bullet points in history you know when you when you scan through the last 20 years it's going to be like 
planes crashed into the World Trade Center. We fight in Iraq and Afghanistan for 19 years, and then 2020 happens. And I don't think people are ready to talk about that, but everything that's happened in this country in the last two decades has been leading up to what's happening right now. What would you say your end goal, besides just the Instagram page and doing your blog and everything? What do you what do you want What do you want out of this? It seems like you're so inspired and so passionate by it. Like, do you want to try and, I guess, help with museums in a way? You know, help with these war memorials, or at least be a part of it to be be around what you love. I would say not that you love the pain or you know, anything like that, but love the history behind it. My real passion is in education. Um, I'm going to school to be a teacher, but I'm not waiting until I'm in a classroom. You know, like I want, I want to inspire people to be interested in history. You know, it's it's something that you don't have to wait. You know, until you hit the stuff. You don't have to wait to learn about World War II until you learn about World War II in school. You know, you can read a book or Google it, or you know, it's it's not a bad thing to go down a Wikipedia freaking wormhole about about history you know i i think that's like break the stigma read a, read a read a history book you know it's it's interesting it's real life fiction sometimes you know the things that happen in the real world are stranger than what's in your your novels you know uh, and it i'm passionate about world war ii but you know i'm really interested in other, other topics too so you know, people ask me about um, other periods in history like i'm really interested in um, Native American history in the United States and why it's not taught in schools, you know. I want people to, like, think deeper, you know, underneath that, like, this this static line of history that you get taught and spoon-fed in school, you know, there's so much more to it. And I just, I wish there was a better way, you know, to reach more people and be like, shake them like please like learn this stuff you know well that the way you're talking have you had a teacher that has done that for you because i mean the only reason i have a passion for history or wanting to learn really anything about it is not only in my own research but some of the teachers i've had they've done it in a way where it's not just reading out of a textbook all right class page seven we're going to learn about the war of 1812 and you're like oh fuck but then like when you're actually hearing a teacher, like one of my teachers taught us about the trench war by getting us to this giant packet of like questions and put it on our desk saying, we're going to do this the whole year. And I'm, we're all like, what? And then he's like, now grab the first piece of paper and crumble it up on your desk. And we did that 15 more times. And so we were 15 pages in and then we were all hiding behind our desk. And he's like, now fight. And we're just throwing these paper balls back and forth. And it was two sides against each other. And it's supposed to represent the trench war. And he goes, now you guys are ready to learn. Welcome back. And then next, you know, he hooked us in and it's like damn yeah. like you got us in there like everybody was passionate about it you know everyone wanted to soak up the information you know i think it's a combination of like real life experiences with me and teachers you know i had some really great teachers in high school uh history i mean i always had great um uh, but going to the places the battle sites you know it really that lit a spark and then when I was stationed in North Carolina, that's where I finished out my time in the Marine Corps. I volunteered in a World War II museum out there, and I really got to like handle the stuff, you know, handle all the weapons and maintain World War II vehicles and stuff. And you know, I just got to learn stuff and have experiences that you know most people don't get to. You know, you get to see all these weapons, you know, in a in a book, but how often do you get to like, handle them? You know, really understand how they work, and you know, you're holding a a German K-98 Mauser, you know, and they're like, they fought off an allied invasion with this bolt action rifle, you know, and they almost beat, they almost took over an entire country, you know, and you're holding that in your hand, you're like, where, where has this been, you know, and I think those real life practical experiences are the, are like the most important things, things that really like engage you and bring you in. You want to feel that position, you want to be, you want to feel that emotion of like, wonder what it was like to flip this up put a bullet inside of it and then cock it. Like you want to, you want to, you want to know what that feels like the gravity of what it must feel like to be hiding behind a wall, thinking about your family and having bullets whiz over your head, you know, hit walls beside you. That's what I feel like places, museums, all these things is the aspiration that they should try and get. They should try and try and create that moment. A teacher should try and create that moment. Not just, Hey guys, we're going to watch planet earth and then click on the TV. Don't fucking show me a video explain to me from the scenario show me it 
Right. And I, and you know, I love museums, obviously. I mean, I love history and I like to go through museums, but I always value, you know, being actually to handle the artifacts. And, you know, you can't go to a museum and like point in a glass case. You're like, can I, can I, can I play with that for a little while? Like, that's not going to happen. So that's why, like, I have a personal collection of things, you know, like weapons and, and magazines that, you know, yeah, I want to preserve history, but I also want to handle it. I want to feel history. And I think that's kind of like where museums are a little off the mark sometimes. Like hit, you see history through literally a lens, you know, it's their lens is a piece of glass separating you from the, the artifacts or the, the whatever their write-ups are. And it's metaphorically and literally like a layer between you and history, you know? Now, for somebody that's going to research or might want to look up a little bit more about World War II history or just history in general, what do you, what advice do you have for them? Like if a young kid comes to you with a textbook and says, I want to know more about the history of America or the history of just any country. When a kid comes up to you and asks like, hey, I have this textbook. I want to know more about history. What do you suggest I do? Well, if we're talking about World War II in particular, um, I really recommend you start with your own family. Because once you figure out, I have this personal connection, you're hooked. You know, it's a little different than reading about these abstract people in these abstract places that you really can't like wrap your head around but you know it's harder now um kids that are born now they're not going to have living family members that fought in the war i i was very lucky i got to spend some time with some of my great grandparents uh before they passed away when i was in high school but i feel bad you know people aren't going to have that physical tangible connection to history anymore but you, they're still, they're, you're still related to them, right? So it's going to be your grandparents' parents fought in the war. So you're, you're, or your great-grandparents' parents fought in the war. So you're, you still have this family connection, although it's not like, it's not as observable, right? Because you didn't actually know these people, but you've seen pictures. And, and then you kind of have like, most of like a running idea of World War II, right? You know, it's a worldwide war, the Nazis and the Americans, the Japanese. But once you can like get that like personal connection, like this is how my family plays a role, you can build from there. And you know, I started there, but I'm still there. You know, I'm still trying to figure out how all these different pieces of my family fit into the bigger picture. And I don't know if I'll ever finish. You know, I, I think that's part of it. You know, part of history is you're never gonna have all the answers. You know, it's always this quest for more information, but you're never gonna have a hundred percent of it because you weren't there. You know, you can only go off pictures and stories other people's accounts and there's always going to be something missing you know even if you think you know everything well what did your grandpa eat for breakfast on may the 4th 1942 you're never gonna know you know and would you take a time travel machine and go back to either the day before a serious event happened to see what was going on at the time period. I feel like if I was going to have the ability to go back in time to when we're in World War II, I would really time travel back to the family meals that were happening, maybe in my own family, in my own bloodline, seeing what was happening there. You know, somebody wasn't there because they were fighting in a war, but being around in that situation, I feel like we talk about the heroes, obviously. We talk about the people that fought, but what about the families that were home? What turmoil were they going through? You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I was reading a, an article actually written about my family, which I'd never seen until recently. But it was about this. I, I've already kind of been filling you in. There was eight sons and seven of them went off to war. And it's the story of, I don't know if you're familiar with the service star banners during World War II, but it was really common for families to hang up these banners in their window. And each blue star on the banner uh, represented one family member that was in the military overseas. So if you had seven sons, you'd have seven blue stars. But if a family member died, you switch the blue star out for a gold star. That's where the term gold star family comes from. As in like you had a, a member of your family killed in action. It's still used today. Um, places have like gold star highways or uh, people are referred to as gold star families, but it comes back from these service banners. But I was reading the story of my family when they switched one of the blue stars to a gold star on their, on their banner, you know, that had to be awful. <laughs> you found out that your, your family member died in Papua New Guinea, 7,000 miles away. And you're like, I guess we're switching a star on the banner today. <laughs> like, that, that had to be just terrible. 
This is why I wish, like, we, like, I don't know if you know too much about Mormons, but they, basically, they keep a journal for, you know, every day they write something in it. I was like, if people had that, everyone had that, imagine looking back at, like, your grandfather's journal, your great-grandfather's journal, and just reading the emotions they went through, like, took a shit today, and then the next day, it's like, had to take down a star, or had to switch over a star, then you're like, that's a dramatic switch, man, like, but you get to see what, like, you know, when the situation impacted them, when it finally hit and I'm like, damn, like, I feel like there's a, what we're saying before about the teaching education in this field. I feel like someone like you that's passionate about this is going to be able to teach this in a way that it's going to make kids and make people want to learn a little bit more about it. And that's really what it is with history. I just, for some reason, history in particular, someone has to light the spark in you. I mean, it might be that way in other fields too, because I mean, I just, I just don't have those other sparks, but you know, every time you talk to somebody that's a history major in college, it's a labor of love, man. Like nobody's going to, to study history because they're going to make a million dollars, right? Like there's, there's no, I don't like, I have no like uh, wrong ideas about it. You know, I'm not going into history thinking that I'm going to like be the president of the United States. Like it's not, it's not going to happen. And there's not that many jobs. Unless you're planning on being a teacher, you're going to work in a museum. So these people that are going into history, they love, there's general like, passion and love for it, you know. Not like, not that every job doesn't have that, but there's people that become like doctors and lawyers because they know they're going to be able to pay the bills, right? It's not like things like history and music. You have to have a passion for it because if you don't, like, you're going to hate your life because you're not going to make a million dollars unless you write the next the next like if you want to be bill gates don't be a teacher i think everybody's understood that for a long time you do it because you love it right and so like things like history in particular like at some point every person that studies history they had their moment they're like wow like this is what i want to do with the rest of my life and you know i don't talk about this a whole lot but i had that before i joined the marine corps and people are like do not go to school for history. I'm like, well, that's really what I want to do. So maybe I'll join the Marine Corps for four years and I'll change my mind. Like I'll pick something else. Well, I went through four years in the Marine Corps and then went to school for history anyway. So it, it's it all comes I mean, like, full I, circle. Right. And, you know, I love history and it's my passion. And hopefully, you know, I'll be able to like, pay the mortgage and not starve to death working in the history field but you just got to get to the level where you got the professor lab coat with the patches on the elbows right yeah i'm always so jealous yeah i'm always so jealous when i see that i'm like this guy's got life figured out you know i had one of those professors he'd been i go to the university of minnesota and he'd been teaching there since 1963 fuck he's history you should have soaked up as much information from him as you possibly could yeah it was a, a Vikings history class, and he's one of the world's leading scholars at 83 or 84 years old on, on the, the old Nor. <laughs> can so. I study the history of 2020? If, is that going to be a class we can teach? Because I got some things to talk about on 2020. You know, I think it will be down the road, you know. And it, it kind of already is, to be honest with you. Universities are offering summer courses on the pandemic, you know, like already. Like that, that. It, I have this deep sigh on that one. I'm sorry. I just, it, it's a, it, I don't know. I never thought in a million years I'd be part of the history books. And next thing you know, you figure out, oh, you're a part of, I was going to just tell my kids that, oh, I survived 2012 when that whole movie came out. Like, this is what I went through. Tom, Tom Cusack or whatever had to fly me on an airplane. This is what I went through. Yeah, survived on an aircraft carrier. I don't know. <laughs> there were earthquakes and hurricanes and we only few survived and we had to repopulate from there. But, uh, I mean, I think history is important. It's best not to forget. And I know we talk about moving on and things too, but it's also when we talk about the mistake thing, history is information and information is always good. Yeah, I think you're really right there. You know, we have to find a balance. You know, you can't dwell in the past forever because you'll never live in the present and we'll never build towards something more positive, but you can't throw it away a hundred percent either. It's like, it's like you you already have like the rules to the game. Like everything that could be done wrong has already been done. Yeah. Like you can't just like throw that away and start over every couple of years. 
unfortunately that's what we we usually been doing but you also like you can't spend so much time reading that book that you're not doing anything in the present so it's this weird like balancing act between like appreciation and knowledge but also like progress and as much as i say like history is not progress it hasn't been progress we can work towards like today you know june 20th 2020 this could be the day where history starts moving in a positive direction but that's going to involve like you know some genuine human struggle and i don't know if we have it in us to be honest it takes pressure to make a diamond son I appreciate you for coming out and doing the podcast, dealing with some of the technical difficulties, I would say. Um, but Holden, please tell everybody where we can find you at, where we can look up your blogs and everything about history. Sure. Uh, the easiest place to find us is on Instagram. If you look up true stories of World War II or even just stories of World War II, you're going to find us. We're also on Facebook, but I really encourage you to come to Instagram because uh, it's easier to consume on Instagram. My content's made for Instagram. It just happens to also be on Facebook for the older generation who's not on Instagram. But come check us out. Read a story. I mean, I you don't have to follow me and read on my posts every day, but you know, read a couple. See see what interests you. Maybe maybe I can spark somebody else's interest in history. They'll they'll be writing books someday. You know. What the hell's a Twitter? <laughs>